Are you looking for resources to equip pastors and church members? We invite you to visit our online bookstore at www.ninemarks.org forward slash books to purchase any of our Nine Marks books. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. This is Mark Dever. We're in Washington, D.C., and I am here today uh, to interview author and editor, speaker and critic, founder and fellow, scholar and sociologist, husband and father, Christian and Anglican, adopted Virginian, Os Guinness. Thank you. Great pleasure to be with you again, Mark. (laughs) Thank you for spending some time with us today. Oz, are you happy to be called an evangelical? Absolutely. And the reason is, I think, and in a lot of situations, I would just be a Christian. But as soon as you come down to describe some of the different traditions, I think the word evangelical trumps all the others. Because orthodoxy with the capital O, our Lord, obviously, he spoke the truth and truth matters, but he never stressed that. Equally, Catholicism, there's a universality in everything that he said, but that wasn't a huge part of his teaching. But the essence of evangelical, defining ourselves by the heart of the good news of the announcement of the kingdom, Mm. you can't get earlier. You can't get deeper. So the trouble is today, it's surrounded with the barnacles of all the things that have happened culturally Mm -hmm. and politically in the last 30 years. So evangelical, virtually a dirty word. But we will never get beyond it. While people want to live and believe as Jesus called anyone to live and believe, there will be evangelicals. So should Roman Catholics be happy to be called evangelical? Well, I'm glad that some of them, as they press for reformation, are now calling themselves evangelical Catholics. Hmm. Because they recognize the need to go back to the sources at the most fundamental level. Hmm. So, yes. Uh, We're here to talk about your recent, as of this interview book in 2015, Fool's Talk. Uh, So uh, thank you for writing this, brother. I read it last summer. Hugely appreciated it. Um, One question and one comment to begin with. One comment. I like the fact that your book has a scripture index in the back. Did you have anything to do with that? No. Well, whoever that editor is at IVP, thank you so much. So many times there are not scripture indices in the backs of books. And it just makes it so much more useful yeah. for me when there's a scripture index. No, that's credit to IVP. Thank you, IVP, for that. <laughs> One question. Uh, is this book your magnum opus? I wouldn't like to call any book that because it means this year's is a letdown. <laughs> and, but, you know, the, it, this book has more thinking in it than any other book because it goes back 40 years to the, my earliest days at Labrie. And I went to Labrie and Francis Schaeffer in 1967. So I've been thinking about some of these things ever since then. 
So in that sense, it's kind of like a vintage wine that's matured a little over the years. Well, I think that uh, it's, to me, it felt like, as somebody who's not read everything you've written, but has read a lot of what you've written, it did feel a bit like a celebration and summary and a refining. And I, I noticed even in your benedict, in your benediction, in your dedication, you know, who you dedicated it to, you, you dedicated it um, to Peter Berger, you know, to its returning to your themes of some of your first books. I think I first heard you speak around 1980 at Black Mill Memorial Presbyterian Church in Durham, mm-hmm. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So that would be 36 years ago. When you were a duke. I was a duke as an undergrad, and you were already mm-hmm. out there storming the world. With... Well, I owe the idea centrally to two people, Francis Schaeffer and Peter Berger. Schaeffer, as you know, is strong on theology, of course, but the history of ideas. His weakness is in understanding culture, and that whole dimension I got from Peter Berger. And Berger is a Lutheran, and he's in sociology, has no interest specifically in apologetics, and yet his stuff is incredibly useful. And now that he's in his 80s, he realizes he's understood more by evangelicals Mm. than by anyone else. Mm. Now, in the book, you cite most frequently G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and Friedrich Nietzsche. And Pascal. Well, I'm just saying most frequently, counting it up. (laughs) <laughs> Those are the most frequent ones. Does this mean you're like a particular disciple of these three men? I mean, what should we conclude from this? No, I, I mean, I love Augustine. I love Pascal. I uh, enjoy Søren Kierkegaard. But G.K. Chesterton, I don't think he often gets the full credit that he deserves. He's he brilliant. irritates me so much <laughs> by his anti-Calvinist rants. I know, anyway, I know, and that's so. the trouble with he's that. A but he's still a brilliant prose. apologist. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis, who gets all the credit, actually got an awful lot from G.K. Chesterton. Mm. So, um, but Nietzsche, I think we all need sparring partners. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at a boxer, he wants to sharpen himself by fighting the best person possible in the ring. I try and read something of Nietzsche every year wow. as a deliberate kind of act of a sparring partner because he hates the gospel, but he gives the strongest alternative, and so I find it very bracing. And you've been doing that for 30 or 40 years? Yeah. Do you remember when you self-consciously made that decision to do that? When I was at Oxford. As an undergrad? Yeah. Wow. And you don't regret the decision? Oh, no. You, you, you grow by taking on some of the worst. Schleiermacher, would he have been a good one? I, uh, I, uh, I read him in his time, but yeah. he's not fertile like Nietzsche. Let me begin with the end of the book here, which I think is often a good thing to do. Uh, your conclusion is a simple three paragraphs uh, where you outline the question-answering way of the closed hand and the question-provoking way of the open hand, and you affirm both and urge us to major in the latter, the the open-handed provocation of humor, irony, storytelling, persuasion in our days. So, uh, th- and this book seems then to be a call to do that, and help us helping us to understand how. Mm-hmm. So, am I understanding you well in this? Yes, you are absolutely. Now, most of the church needs both of them. In other words, apologetics. Even the very term is misleading, and you can see I use through the books the word advocacy you know, or persuasion. 
you know, as synonyms so that people start to see it's not some weird discipline off in its own. It is a matter of Christian communication in a persuasive mode. You know, most of the church needs both. But if you look at those who do love apologetics, usually it's the closed fist. You know, tough, logical, close-knit argument, destroying new atheism or whatever it is. We're very strong in that where there's any apologetics. What we lack is the other. And as our culture goes further, we need the arts and imagination and creativity to reach out and make an equally persuasive case that way. But yet you didn't decide to do this book like the Gravedigger File. I mean, you decided to do this book as a prose explication of the importance, as it were, of poetry. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, the Gravedigger File found an interesting response. A lot of ordinary people liked it, being in reverse. Mm -hmm. A lot of thinkers did not like it. Now, apologetics, you're writing to Christians who are thinkers. And, of course, they can take... They don't need a roundabout or creative approach. They can get things immediately, straightforwardly. So this is a straightforward book. So just to be clear, it's a straightforward book, but if you're listening to this, this is not a book on uh, the age of the earth or giving arguments for the reliability of the Bible or the historicity of the resurrection. That is not what you're doing in this book. No, this is on the methodology of apologetics. And my concern is not only to recover persuasion, which is largely missing, but to make apologetics much more biblical. And even, you know, biblically to go right back to Genesis and to root it, the whole notion of defense never rests. Because once there's sin in the world, people will always be blaming other people and be blaming the Lord. And we have work to do as apologists. So I tried to make it much more theological. So apologetics shouldn't be just in response to Nietzsche or Richard Dawkins. It shouldn't be just in response to the great philosophers like Aquinas and many others, and it, or even the early apologists, because they're reflecting their times. It should be biblical. In your introduction, you seem convinced that our even our communications technologies have made this world that we're living in today so different than the worlds of, the say, the 1950s or 1960s. Mm-hmm. You want to just fill that out for us a little bit? Clearly, technological revolutions always stamp humanity and progress. But especially when they're revolutions in ideas. So the invention of writing, incredible. The invention of the alphabet, the second great surge. The invention of printing, think of the Reformation tie-in. And now through the internet, we're in a great revolutionary age of information. So, yes, we're living in the most extraordinary time. And there are many, many implications of this. But we've got to be people to know what it is to think Christianly at such a time and also to be persuasive. And it's persuasion I'm concerned with. I, I heard you speaking on this back in the 70s and 80s before there was an Internet. And so you have been thinking about thinking Christianly very self-consciously as much as anyone I know of uh, for decades. And you were doing that during the sort of unveiling and bringing out of the Internet and the World Wide Web, how has your own thinking as a Christian done with incorporating this and thinking it through? I know it's a very broad question, Mm -hmm. but because you do exhort us in such broad Romans 12 kind of terms, you know, think Christianly, can you give us an example of what it's meant, or just one shard of what Mm -hmm. it's meant for you as a Christian to think Christianly about a gigantic age-transforming mm-hmm. 
reality like the Internet that you're speaking of? Well, let me say personally how I got into it. I mean, I was at London University as an undergraduate, and the book that shook English evangelicals was Harry Blamire's The Christian, Christian Mind. Mind. Superb book. Started off by saying, you know, the chief thing about the Christian mind is that there's no such thing as a Christian mind. And his term, thinking Christianly, mm-hmm. that captured us. And even someone like, say, John Stott, he was a magnificent Bible teacher then. But he didn't think about culture at all. And many of our best teachers in Britain had zero interest in the culture. And here we were, this is the 60s. Swinging London, the Beatles, Fellini, Antonioni, Bergman. And you had a turtleneck yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I still do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the same color. I had <laughs> anyway, that's what got me thinking. And I've tried to keep up with it ever since. But you can see areas where we still aren't thinking biblically. One of them for me is the whole biblical view of time, hour, discernment, generation, signs of the times. There's not much thinking about that. You can see it in Niebuhr. He had some good stuff. Not much in evangelicalism. We're very weak. But you're raising the question of all the new digital technology and so on. You know, obviously, there's a massive area. And there's good and bad. We all know it's the cheapest, most accessible, powerful form, the Internet, of communication in history. But if you look, say, and you think of, say, the cell phones and Sherry Turkle uh, t- together alone, mm-hmm. and we've all been into that, or you take Getting something... together to look at our screens. Yeah. Or you take something like civility, and this touches the elections at the moment. All, all the studies show, as soon as you have anonymous screen names, it, the, the debates immediately descend to something barbaric and dehumanizing and so on. And... Here we are as followers of Jesus. We're called to love our enemies, speak the truth with love, etc. Civility should be a very precious notion to us. There are ways of speaking that respect the human person and, and so on. They've gone. And that's done by the Internet. Just to push back on that historically, if you and I were talking earlier about the founding period in the U.S. And you think of all of the discussion, the very serious discussion that went on through pseudonyms in newspapers. The Federalist Papers. I mean, you know, Alexander yeah. Hamilton. Publius. Yeah, exactly. People publishing. But they didn't publish under pseudonyms in order to insult. Now, right. in some ways, you don't need to. I mean, well, I guess my point is pseudonyms don't candidate. have to debase the conversation. Ah, that's the way they use today. In other words, yeah. one of the key absences today is responsibility. And as soon as you're anonymous, you're not responsible. We're back to Plato and Gyges, you know, being able to twizzle his bezel, the ring, mm-hmm. and commit murder or adultery because you can't be seen. You know, and the, the idea of character, you are what you are when no one sees. And today in the Internet, you can be all sorts of people. You can be a 70-year-old pederast proclaiming to be a fellow girl who's 13 and stalking someone and yeah. so on. So the anonymity of the Internet, it's just one thing. We, we, we've got to say we're in the world but not of the world. Too many people have a sort of false view of worldliness, and the world in our time includes Internet technology, and we sort of understand it. The, the, an old evangelical impulse, let's say from James, friendship of the world is enmity with God, to avoid the world uh, makes no more sense when, you talk, when we're talking of the Internet than it would be to avoid cars. Mm-hmm. Well, it was always wrong. In other words, our Lord told us to be 
in the world. So right. not being in is not an option. Right. So we have to, the first part is engagement. The second part, discernment. And the trouble is a lot of people now are in it, and they just don't think about it. How does a car affect culture in, say, Los Angeles? Or internet, all of us, and so on, cell phones. We have to get people to think Christianly. I use, you know, this is cultural analysis. And the simplest for me, because everyone knows the history of ideas. Nietzsche, Heidegger, Foucault, their ideas are washed down in the rain in postmodern thinking. People have never even heard of Nietzsche, almost quoting him with their ideas, truth and power. But you take something like fast life. 24-7 pressure. Every one of us knows in Washington or L.A. or New York or wherever it is, we all know fast life. Incredible pressure. Business at the speed of light. Turbo capitalism. Which philosopher does it come from? So I you know, go to student groups or churches or even CEOs and say, all right, fast life. You all know it. How did it come? People, you know, they rack their minds trying to think of some, is it Alfred North Whitehead did it? or you know? But no one can say anyone. Because it was no one. It didn't come from anything because it came from clocks and watches, which been around since 1300. But they were, they were brought into our culture in the 19th century in the Industrial Revolution. And now with atomic digital time and so on, we're all aware of this incredible pressure of time. So Africans who say, you know, all Westerners have watches, Africans have time. They're right. We're living under time pressure. It's, you know, one o'clock. What does that mean, one of the clock? In other words, we're not running by the birds and bees or the sunset or the sunrise. We're running by clocks. And this, this is the, said to be the most powerful Western invention ever. Call hmm. up just to be clear, a brother from Kenya sitting here, the papers are due at 5.30. <laughs> yeah, just to be very clear. Notwithstanding what... <laughs> Thank you, brother. We appreciate your incarnational love there. That's great. Um, are, are you arguing that these differences we're talking about that have happened in the changing of communication technologies, so, you know, so the time pressure, is, it's been there longer, but it's, it, uh, it is exploited or intensified by the reality of the Internet connecting people when it's always day, business Absolutely. is always open. So um, you look in the past. You had the past, the present, the future. And the only one anyone knew about was the past. You live in your small town. And even town. then, not the immediate past, unless it was your not own. The, and even then, historians came along and changed what you thought was the past. It's the only way we and, get PhDs. But you knew nothing about the future. <laughs> and you right. didn't know much about the present and the other side. But now we have instant, total information yeah. about the moment. Right. And you can follow anything in the world as it happens And things today. can be created, like the Arab Spring. Exactly. And now we claim to have knowledge of the future through the quack science of futurism. So the net effect, and here comes down to your pastors, the net effect is the urgent moment of time is now, as the future becomes the present, sees that you've got it made. You're a politician, you're a marketer. Now, a couple of years ago, I looked at all the ads for pastors' conferences. And the number of them, they're all about innovation, thinking out of the box, being on the edge relevant magazine, you name it. That's crazy. You know, take, say, the Reformation, the church goes forward best by going back first. Because we're weak when we've lost something. And it's not by being trendy and relevant. It's 
by going back to what we've lost, something in Jesus or Paul, Galatians or whatever it is. That's the Reformation. That also is the Renaissance. Incredibly powerful movement, the Renaissance, for better or worse, went back to the roots of classical learning. And yet the whole church in America is oriented towards relevance, trendiness, being up to date. And that's why we're becoming like liberals, spinning our wheels with trendiness and just being very transient and shallow. You really have to visit a service at Capitol Hill Baptist Church some Sunday morning. Oz. Well, I'm, I can say this to you because I know you agree with me. Um, <laughs> but through these changes that have happened in, in culture, even in our lifetime, are you saying that these differences make a recovery of persuasion imperative? Is that, is that what brings us this book and its thesis? Well, I usually put it more simply. I mean, if you look, take, say, America, the same would be true in Europe in slight differences. But America, you, Billy Graham is a natural expression under the Lord of the Eisenhower era. Religion was everything and everywhere. But what's happened since Eisenhower, the public square has got infinitely more secular and highly contentious. And private life has got infinitely more diverse. So that, you know, the phrase, everyone is now everywhere, you can find examples of all the world's faiths and ideologies somewhere in our suburbs today. Mm -hmm. So we need to speak, we can no longer speak Christian and know that people will understand us. Now, you can add technology and it's, you know, it's infinite uh, differences too, but there's the central thing in American life, public life more secular, private life more diverse. We need to speak the languages of all these differences if we're to be persuasive. And that transfers into politics. If we're defending pro-life or, you know, we're disagreeing over, say, same-sex marriage, we can't any longer say the Bible says. It's no longer authority for the culture. We've got to make creative, persuasive arguments. So in, as an example of a creative, persuasive argument, um, you mentioned same-sex marriage. Would you say, I'll get very far in a conversation by saying, uh, I don't agree with where, say, the District of Columbia has gone on this legally right now, and rather than you viewing me then as uh, prejudiced or negatively, can't I claim space to have a minority opinion, just like five years ago, the people who now are, as it were, in power, use that same argument? Can't I legitimize my Christian distinctive by the use of the same privileged minoritarian status mm-hmm. that I should not be persecuted? Is, that, is there any capital there? Can I use that? Does that yes, work? Yes, you certainly can. But... The danger in what you're saying is that some people in the Anabaptist direction will use that sort of argument just for a quietist Sort of check out of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not... We are still the majority. So to me, it's a crying shame that tiny groups say that I admire, like, say, the Jewish community. I greatly admire them. Less than 2% of America. Or gay activists, whom I don't admire, less than 2% of America. But each of those groups has phenomenally more cultural influence than, say, Christians, and we're more than 70% of America. Something is wrong with the saltiness and light-bearing capacity of the Christian community. So, yes, we need to think through all these public life things, and I've tried to do that in other books, but we should be out there persuasive, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the country, of freedom, of justice, humanity, dignity, and various other things. We have the keys to the way forward to the world. Oz, unless we're going to just start a weekly interview series, I need to move on back to this book. You're just too interesting. 
there's always so much to talk with about with you about. Uh, in your book here, Fool's Talk, you have laid out 12 chapters. Any structure in those 12 chapters that we wouldn't realize it, that's there clever, cleverly and, you know, you're trying to go through something, uh, or is it just 12 chapters? Like the 12 apostles? No, 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 no. no. Any background in Narnia and the planets? No, no, or no, 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 nothing. No, no. All right, so just um, no Michael Ward or the other. That's what I was wondering. Okay. No, no, no. Okay, so if, if I can just look at your first chapter on creative persuasion, uh, which uh, friends, if you're listening to this and you haven't you haven't read any of the book yet, let me just encourage you to pick up that first chapter and read it. You you begin with this position that the world that we live in has changed. And that we're here in the West anyway, uh, now inhabiting a world with a self-conscious antipathy to our message as Christians. And that therefore, rather than the sort of battering ram apologetics, we should perhaps better try the Trojan horse parables. Am I understanding you right? Uh, Trojan horse? Yes, maybe. I wouldn't use those words exactly, but yes. Because that seems deceptive? Persuasion. Okay. Persuasion, absolutely. But I'm just trying to take on... The Trojan horse was deception. And, uh, you know... Well, when Jesus tells a parable... I I know you can say that, but I... He's creating it deliberately Mm -hmm. so that people will not be immediately made defensive. intellectual time bomb that goes off afterwards. The Trojan horse is a kind of intellectual time bomb for the Trojans. (laughs) Anyway, for that. goes off later. Yeah, it does. But I'm interested in the subversive action of the parables. What is it about them? They they build up an expectation in one direction, and suddenly, well, Nathan's parable has a punchline: hmm. "You're the man." Hmm. Our lords don't. They're much more subtle in that way. But Nathan, talking to David, the whole expectation: "Your Majesty, here's another law case for you today." And he'd probably given one yesterday and the day before. So the expectation builds up somewhere. And David's into it now. You're angry. He deserves to... It's you. The punchline, the effect is to reverse the original thing and reveal an entirely new way of saying things. So it's like a a trapdoor sprung. And David has just sprung into the presence of the Lord and his Mm. truth. That's what it should be. So has Christianity ever gone through a period in which the gospel was not at the center of the church? Oh, yes. Take, say, the pre-Reformation church. I mean, the Catholic papacy was virtually secular Renaissance princelings. And the corruption was profound. But I think in parts of America, we are back almost to that pre-Reformation chaos. And corruption. And does that mixed history affect our appreciation, our use of classical Christian tools? Biblical tools? It should never affect the biblical tools. We need them more than ever. Amen. The classical ones, we need to look at everything under question. Yeah. Yeah. Everything short of our Lord. So the creative persuasion, in your mind, it's a very short chapter to begin with, is straight out of Scripture. Absolutely. It's Nathan, it's Jesus. Absolutely. Inspired by God's spirit. Yeah, it's our, God himself. The first words after the fall, a question mark, not mm. a statement. Where are you? Hmm. Hmm. Your second chapter technique, you continue in arguing that we live in a time for using stories when we might in the past have used rational arguments. Is that right? No. No? No, I'm attacking I'm just leave that there the evangelical cookie cutter. Yeah. approach, like the one, two, three, fours. You know, they are a reflection 
of American love of technology. You, you do something, run it through in reverse, reduce it to four steps or 12 steps, and sell it in that simple way, as if everything can be reduced to technique. It can't. So the gospel should be shaped, or rather, sorry, apologetics should be shaped by the gospel. And the whole dynamics of the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection together are profoundly, that's what they should be shaped by, not just some simplistic American technique. No, I, I knew Bill Bright, had a great appreciation for Bill and for Vonette, who died just recently. Wonderful people. Thank God for the thousands they led to faith. But their reduction of the four laws simply isn't the gospel. And apologetically, you can't go, say, to a new atheist and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Some new atheists will get really mad at that and so on because it simply isn't flexible and comprehensive as a biblical view of persuasion would be. There's no one-size-fits-all to everyone. Jesus never talked to two people the same way, and nor should we. Everybody's different. Now, he knew immediately where the heart was. We don't. So we have to love enough to listen and listen enough to know where the heart is and then shape our response in the light of that. So no cookie cutter. So for, for Guinness fans. No, no, no. Mark, there aren't any Guinness fans. There, there are. Except for our family's dark stuff. That's it. <laughs> well, there is that. There are Guinness fans in that way. Uh, <laughs> are, are the, are the goals you had in the Gravedigger file, just to go back to that again, were they substantially different than the goals you have in this book? No, I, I, I was studying this stuff then. Yeah. And one of my early expressions was the Gravedigger file. And just for people who don't know that book, just explain briefly what that book is. Well, it's in reverse, like C.S. Lewis's um, Screwtape Letters, but mm-hmm. it's not a temptation to an individual. It's more a, a secret service spy subverting the church as a whole. So it's very different, and I owe more to John le Carre mm-hmm. <laughs> than to C.S. Lewis on that. But it was an attempt to to put that sort of approach into practice. Now, let's be clear. Pastors normally assume that their congregation who's come to church eagerly to worship and to listen to the word, you'd never need this approach. Now, obviously, there are some topics, though. I mean, Tim Keller often says in New York when he's touching on, say, sex, he's got to be terribly careful. It's like the third rail. Mm-hmm. You know. So there are some topics, maybe stewardship's Sunday. You know, we talk about money and people, I'm, I'm a layman. We want to hang on to our wallets if we know you're going to talk about that. You know, some topics that you might need a bit of a creative persuasion approach. But a sermon should normally assume people really want to hear whatever you say coming directly from the Lord. So we're not talking about preaching. We're talking about persuasion to people. Not In other words, the basic thing, when you love enough someone to find out where they are, are they open spiritually or are they closed? That's the key question. And, and this book serves as an argument for the importance of realizing in our personal communication that the best way to reach someone may be a more indirect method. If they're closed. Yeah. Suspicious, hostile, indifferent. Right. And you're just saying uh, these days more people are that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's important for us to learn how to creatively yeah. persuade. Um, and you mentioned in your book maybe a couple of times that that kind of learning is not best done through formal education, learning how to persuade creatively. No, I'd say the better educated you are as a Western graduate, 
probably the worst we are at this, and I include myself. In other words, I, I went to Oxford. It's not a bad university. I don't know what you think as a Cambridge man, but <laughs> that's beside the good point. <laughs> Heavy stress on reason, analysis, yeah. criticism, all that. No talk at all about imagination, unless you're in some literature department, things like that. Now, where is this, the parabolic approach kept alive? It's in, in churches that have street drama. They haven't been ruined by graduate education. So many of us who've had better education need to realize we've been shortchanged. One side, the left brain, has been incredibly developed, but the right brain's virtually been neglected, and the intuitive side, and so on. So this approach is much more biblical because there's a holistic sense. Some people are open, some are closed to use different tactics. But apologetics has become too much. I don't want to get in the left brain, right brain jargon, but apologetics generally is too left-brained. So you think formal education has hurt the church's evangelism these days? Oh, yes. So yeah. we should strive for less formal education? No, <laughs> no. No, to make sure that we're not put in a straitjacket by being lopsided. Where people, you know, if you do weights totally with your right hand, your left hand will be pretty puny. Yeah. And yeah, evangelicals are heavy on the dogmatic and the theological and the analytical and philosophical. and all. We're just rather weak and puny on the other side. It's not, we shouldn't do the first. No, we should do more of the second. But just from knowing you, I take it that your own experience at Labrie, among other things has helped to make clear to you that the personal learning from example is the way to master this more indirect approach. Well, Schaefer was brilliant at it. You know, people have only read his books, don't get a tenth of Schaefer. You know, and I always say, what was his secret? They say he, he loved the Lord passionately. I mean, he wasn't the greatest preacher. But if you listen to some of the tapes, there's almost every sermon where his voice breaks with the emotion of what he's saying and the awe of what he's saying about the Lord or whatever it is. He loved people like that. You watched him. And, you know, he's about as far away as I am from you. You could literally see his eyes after five minutes welling with tears. He was so into people. And he loved truth. I mean, Nietzsche has a phrase, all truth is bloody truth to me. Schaefer was like that. So he could make, he was rolling the floor, laughing, wrestling with his kids. But, when he was fighting for truth, oh, he was passionate about it. But it was that personal side that a lot of people lack. So too much apologetics as the great boxing hope comes into town, wipes out the new atheists, put up in front of him and so on. And we all listen and watch it and we're glad that he does it. No, no, we've lost that personal. Hmm. And you can't do this sort of approach without the personal. Rick Warren is very, very good at this. Hmm. You know, Rick often says just simply, tell me a story. And I first saw this when I met one of the leaders of ACT UP, you know, the homosexual mm -hmm. activist group. And uh, he, I, I was talking to him at a reception, and I said, how did you get close to the faith? He wasn't then a Christian. He said, well, I was at the, the Clinton Global Initiative Foundation, and this big teddy bear of a man came up in the, in the break, put his arm around me and said, tell me a story. He said, an hour later, to my horror, Having shared his story of his gay lifestyle, he said, I realized the guy was a pastor. But he the first person who stopped and listened and loved me. And a year and a bit later, he came to Christ. And I think we've got to know how to do that with people. 
For those listening who uh, have read very little of C.S. Lewis, because uh, people like that do exist, <laughs> what are a couple of pieces that you might encourage them to read and why? Well, C.S. Lewis does both these things, as G.K. Chesterton did. So, obviously, mere Christianity, through which more people have come to faith than any other single book, is that logical, rational, evidential side. And magnificent. I came to faith partly through reading that. So did Chuck Colson and, and, and thousands of others. But then the Screwtape Letters, or more significantly, the Narnia Chronicles as a whole, mm-hmm. is the more imaginative, creative, persuasive side, and that appeals powerfully to other people. So Lewis is good at both. And, and you, you mentioned a moment ago that, you know, for people who've only read Schaefer's books, they don't, they don't get a tenth of the man. Well, that's all we can do now. So for those of us who only get that tenth, uh, what's the what's the best way? What, what's the, what's the thing that we can read of Schaefer's that would be most helpful to us? Do you think? Well, I, I say that partly because he never wrote a single line. These now are all transcripts. They're all transcripts of his talks. Now Edith Schaefer, she was a force of nature, rather like Alistair McGrath. Give them both a computer or a typewriter on a, a weekend, a and she'll come Monday morning, and there's your book. Hmm. She wrote every word of hers, usually in one weekend. His are transcribed by people like Jim Sire. They did a noble, valiant job, and the books have been incredibly successful, but he didn't write them. And often you don't quite hear his voice Mm. in it. And as you know, for most of us, I don't know what you'd say, John Stott, they said his books and his sermons were almost Jim Sire, who did both of his. Mm -hmm. You know, what he gave in a talk and then gave the transcript, they're both the same. And powerful. Mm. Most of us in, I'm not, I'm a layman. I only rarely preach, but you preach all the time, Mark. The sermon has much more passion in Mm -hmm. it than you can get into a page of writing. Yeah, yeah. So name one title of Schaefer or a book about Schaefer. What would be the best thing someone could read to know more and uh, garner good from him? Uh, Is it Barry Hankins? Is is that the book? I think that's one of the best on Schaefer. Okay. Um, H-A-N-K-I-N-S. Too many people, though, captured his mind. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen a book. Colin Durius has a good book on his ideas. Yeah. But Schaefer wasn't just ideas. See, this is what uh, Christopher Catherwood says about his grandfather, about Lloyd-Jones. He says, you know, they capture his ideas. They don't capture the man, the heart, how it was like to relate to him. Which is a shame because the biographers of Churchill, you know, you have both. They're, you know, they're unbuctuous. Ebullient man, as well as the extraordinary speaker and writer. Okay, realizing that. that pastors and other church leaders are listening, what about the works of Peter Berger? It can, he, he's not, you say, he's not a self consciously religious writer, and yet he does sometimes write about religion from the sociologist's sociology perspective. What would be the best one or two books to read that might help a pastor? Hmm. I wouldn't Remember urge people to plunge into Berger without some shoehorn. But a book that's still in print is a little book called A Rumor of Angels. Tiny little book. And part of it where he's describing secularization, he doesn't agree with now. Secularization theory was wrong. But it's got one chapter, which is called Starting with Man, where he introduces an idea called A Rumor of Angels. There are prototypical experiences, he says, which trigger thinking that points beyond the experience and points towards the Mm. transcendence. Mm. 
And it's a fascinating chapter. Now, he's talking, as, as he was then, a rather liberal theologian. He was writing that theologically one liberal. Yeah, yeah. But if you take that chapter out and put it in a reformed, biblical, evangelical framework, magnificent stuff. Hmm. You know, because, and I have a chapter on signals of transcendence and the way we can use that. I found it a very, very powerful tool. Um, I mean, obviously, the most famous example is C.S. Lewis, Surprised by Joy. Yeah. Joy punctured his atheism. Hmm. What he calls unsatisfied desires more desirable than any satisfaction. Hmm. And he starts to think, and his atheism exploded. Eventually, he comes to our Lord. Do you often find yourself when you're in a situation when you're defending the Christian faith and you end up saying, I don't know? Well, if I don't, in a lot of areas, I, I'm not a scientist. My background is social sciences. You know, I can't, like, say, John Lennox or someone like that or Alistair McGrath or Francis Collins get into some of the arcane stuff. I'm way out of my depth there. I would be in your area. You know, I, I wouldn't be the best person to debate with Bart Ehrman. You'd probably do a great job with him. I couldn't. Every one of us has areas we're strong and areas we know relatively nothing. And I would say it's important if I don't know the answer to say, look, I'll get you a book mm-hmm. or uh, I'll put you in touch with someone. And that's their expertise, not mine. I don't know the answer. There's no shame in not knowing the answer. But there are other areas where it's near enough to our area. I don't know the answer today, but I better know it by the next time I meet this mm-hmm. person I'm talking to. Do you think Christian evangelism feels less sales forcey than it did 20 or 30 years ago? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. But sadly, a lot of that is the, la- the collapse of confidence in evangelism. Hmm. In other words, if you look at the student generation, oh, the so-called millennials. So good effect, bad cause. Exactly. In other words, they've given up on evangelism. Hmm. And in many of our campus groups, social justice is the name of the game which, of course, is important, but no evangelism. And you have someone like, say, Becky Pippert, who made a huge reputation through the book Out of the Salt Shaker. Mm -hmm. She's not invited now. People say, well, we're not interested in evangelism. Well, that's tragic. Forgive me, but even I've heard it coming from some Southern Baptists, Mm -hmm. which is almost unthinkable because you grew so rapidly in the 40s and 50s through evangelism. Do you think the altar call is passing with Billy Graham? I hope not. No. Now, the age of mass evangelism goes in and out. Uh, and, and at the moment, it's at a low ebb, tidally. But it'll come in again because we simply have the technology to reach more people today. So it will never disappear. And if it does in our circles, sadly, we're going to have Hindu or even atheist evangelists who will do it on that sort of scale. So mm. it may be unfashionable now, but it will never disappear totally. I, th- I think one of the new waves of church practice right now, which is reappropriating a lot of the same emphases, is the spontaneous baptism move. I don't know if you've seen that or, or, or aware of that, but in a lot of in a lot of uh, evangelical megachurches, they're having times where they just sort of, as it were, open up the baptismal font and say, or the pool, and just say, y'all come, uh, whoever wants to be baptized. And they're just immediately baptizing people, which... I'm sure some of them are true converts. I'm concerned that a lot of them are not, and the gospel gets confused. Always in America, the the trouble is that while the gospel is still reasonably fashionable, and in many places still is, things are too casual, too easy, and so on. So 
If you look at modernity as a whole, and I argue in various books, it's the greatest challenge the church has ever faced, much more than persecution. Modernity makes evangelism easier and discipleship harder. Berger's term is everyone in the modern world is conversion prone. They're always looking for something new, consumerism, style, and so on. There must always be a latest, greatest, which you've got to have. And so the mind is always somewhat open to new things. Mm. That's good, but also very bad. That's what leads to this rage for relevance in evangelicalism. But Mm. what leads to people coming to Christ too easily. But discipleship and integrated obedience in a long direction for the whole of life and the whole of your world, that's tough. Mm. So in evangelism particularly, what's the difference between addressing the mind and addressing the the heart and passions and emotions in your evangelism? I'm surely you want to do both. Yeah, all of the above. In other words, people are whole people. Right. But you've got to find out what it is with this person is the leading impulse. Are they thinkers? In our conversation earlier, I didn't didn't use the word brainiac about one of our friends who very much, you know, up there in the mind and so on. Other people are very much emotional. So you've got to find out what stirs and strives this person. But above all the apologetics, what's the blockage? No, it's if the blockage is emotional. I only began to get to know Christopher Hitchens just literally before his cancer. And he broke off a lot of things. We'd agreed to get together. Never happened because of cancer. But clearly his mother's suicide and the awful surroundings of that when he was a graduate from Oxford, huge impact on his life. Or Bertrand Russell, the way he grew up with, a sadly, a grandparents who were evangelicals who stifled his thinking. Or I was talking, again, forgive me, those of you who are Baptists, I was talking a couple of years ago to a man furious with God as an atheist. And it turned out his father was a deacon in a church, in a Baptist church in the South, who'd abused the mother. Mm. And this left the sky. It was nothing intellectual at all. It was shaped by that emotional experience of abuse. So is someone's objection intellectual or is it emotional or whatever? You have to find out by listening. And one of the things you're, you're pushing us toward is that uh, if we just try the sort of closed-handed apologetics with people like that, it's going to tend to bounce off. What we need to do is is have more mental patience and obvious love. Yeah. Try some indirect methods so that they can spy over into what appears to them to be somebody else's life and see the truth and goodness of the Christian gospel mm-hmm. and then maybe filter it back and see it in their own. Eventually. That's right. The way I put it, and this may not be quite accurate, but if you think of the pilgrimage from unbelief to faith as one to hundred, everyone is somewhere on that line. Some people are back at five and some people are 85 or whatever. All we're responsible for, you might have an hour with someone on a plane or a conversation somewhere, all we're responsible is finding out where they are now and getting them as far as the time will allow. Sometimes you have the privilege, you remove a logjam, someone comes the whole way. Mm-hmm. You know, St. Paul and the Philippian jailer, mm-hmm. he's home. But other people, if you move them from five to six and you've removed that logjam, the Lord has many other witnesses. Mm-hmm. But people whom you want to rush ahead, you just leave them as burnt over ground. And I'll never forget once hitchhiking in the days when people did hitchhike. And the person next to me, two of us together, the other guy was a Camus Crusade guy, and he tried the four laws on the driver. This is in Switzerland, and the Swiss driver spoke pretty good English. 
He gave him the first law, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And this Swiss driver said, yes, I know the second, third, and fourth. And he trotted them out before the crusade guy, and he was unimpressed. And just to press that, well, it just left him as burnt over ground. Clearly, people had tried to do it, and we're only responsible for moving people as far as the time we're with them, the occasion allows. Sometimes it's very brief. Hmm. Chapter 3, your defense, oh, the defense word. never rests. <laughs> Uh, it's all about the importance of questions. Uh, and again and again, you do great presuppositional work. So I love the fact in one phrase, page 49, you simply mention the fact that the known facts were never all the facts. Brother, one of the things I appreciate about your books is how you distill wisdom so often, or it just, it comes out in these phrases. I just, I remember when I first read you saying that, just putting the book down and enjoying that. You know, just thinking about how the known facts or never all the facts. Why is that so important for us to know? Well, I got that from Dorothy Sayers. <clears throat> and Lord Peter Wimsey defends this woman because he knows her. All the facts of the case are watertight, the police say. But they didn't know her. He knows her, knows that's impossible. Mm-hmm. So there must be a missing fact which would change the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And he pursues it and finds it. Now that's our position with the Lord. We know the Lord. So whatever people hold against him, the known facts cannot be all the facts. In other words, they've got him wrong. Their God is too small, their God is all wrong, whatever it is. So we who know and love the Lord, we're defending him. And in that sense, while there's one more objection in the world, the defense never rests. Unlike the American legal phrase. Now, the subtitle of the book is Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. Do you think the Old Testament has much help for us here? Absolutely. How so? Well, you could take technical parts like the prophetic lawsuits. You know, they'd go back to the notion of the covenant and argue in the light of the covenant, the prophets are the social critics. Hmm. You know, I, I was saying to you earlier in our discussion, we talked of separation of powers. The Jews talks about the three crowns, the king, who's the equivalent of the executive, the priest, and the prophet. And the prophet's job was countercultural, always to bring them back. The lawsuits are an example. But you think of the prophets as a whole. They use history. They use nature. Think of how Isaiah begins. Even the animals know their way home, etc. You know, they are incredible persuasive apologists in the Old Testament style. Then you have specific examples like Nathan to David or Micaiah or whatever. But above all, for me, it's rooted in the fall and the response to the fall. You know, if you take the fall, uh, balanced by Paul saying that on the day of judgment, every voice, every mouth will be stopped. That word is, they will be apologists less. less. There'll be no apology. No defense counsel can defend them then. It will be obvious what everyone has done. Well, from the fall till that moment, there is a work for us human apologists. And of course, we know from the Gospels, we're only the juniors. The supreme apologist is the Holy Spirit. And so we're doing it under him, following his directions. You say on page 52 that the story of the fall in Genesis 3 is where apologists find their earliest and deepest motivation of all. Well, for the reason I said, we're defending the honor 
it's not just an argument that for the possible existence for God. I think philosophical proofs are very weak myself, philosophically. But the heart of it's much deeper. We love the Lord. We are jealous for his honor and his glory. And any unbelief or disobedience is challenging that. And the Lord knows in today's culture, almost daily we're seeing things in public life. I was really, you know, this may be trivial, but upset by Peyton Manning. The best he could say on Sunday after he won the Super Bowl was to thank the man upstairs. The man upstairs, that's what our culture has come down to with a lot of talk about the Lord. There's so much today. And, of course, way beyond Peyton Manning, there are outrageous, obscene, vile things said about our Lord. So the passion of apologetics should be that passion for his glory. So those questions that Satan asks Adam and Eve, those are slanders. Absolutely. Slanders on God. Exactly. And what he said and his character. And uh, Eve falls for it. Returning then, thinking about the fall to something you'd said earlier, maybe about my Trojan horse suggestion. <laughs> if the nature of questions, as you say, is subversive, then Satan certainly used subversive questions there in the garden. And we do too. Exactly. Is there anything in the method that's wrong or inappropriate for Christians to employ? No. The great thing about a question, it's indirect and it's involving. It's indirect. You've done a statement. It's snowing now. Well, if we're interested in getting home safely, we're interested. Um, but a question, someone has to get into for themselves and give the answer. So it's much more subversive. Now, parables are even more subversive because they're indirect and involving, but they're also imaginative, and our imagination is our most powerful faculty. And that's why stories are so powerful. But you, you know well, Mark, everyone's saying today, you stories, 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 don't preach Romans. No, tell stories. And yes, but the Bible does both. Mm-hmm. It has Romans and the parables of Jesus. Mm-hmm. The question is, are people open or closed? So it's not, are we modernist and old-fashioned having arguments, and now we're postmodern, so we do nothing but stories. No, it depends who you're speaking to. Well, you know, I'm preaching through Luke right now, and even the way Jesus meshes the actions, the things that happen in history around him with his straightforward teaching mm-hmm. is something other than parable or just just yeah. straight didactic you know, teaching. It's, it's mixing the story of, of life that's happening around you and pointing out observations of the, the woman who puts in the two coins. You know, and he's drawing attention to this and, and making a conclusion from it. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very textured thing. Hand, both and. Yeah. Um, he, one of the things I appreciate about this book that I always appreciate about your writing is your ability to write. Either you always for 40 years have had ridiculously good editors or you are gifted as a writer. And just to give you an example of the, on this exact topic we're talking about, um, this is from page 53 in the book. It's in the middle paragraph. By the end of this little exchange, referring to this exchange we've been talking about between Satan and Eve in the garden, by the end of this little exchange, Eve's trust was no longer absolute and implicit a perfect match with the truth God had spoken. Instead, she had risen to the bait, first to suspect God, and then to put herself forward as the arbiter between God's word and the serpent's word, and so to be a deciding independent viewpoint capable of judging between them. Intoxicated by the heady freedom of this position, she decides there can be no harm in eating the fruit she was forbidden to eat. Surely she needed to experiment in order to know, and so to be able to decide between God's word and the serpent's. Without stating it so baldly in words, 
Her action says that she is right and God is wrong. His word can be ignored with impunity. Brother, please come preach at our church sometime. I mean, that's, that, that's, a, that's a powerful and, I think, accurate explication of what's going on there. No, you're the preacher. Well, I mean, that's a... <laughs> I get into a pulpit once a year. Well, I just friends listening to this, if you haven't... Most seriously, uh, I'd be privileged to once. Yeah, well, if you haven't done this, you should. I would encourage you to look at this. Uh, on the next page, you recount the psychiatrist's condemnation of God for the My Lai massacre, um, which is just a, a riveting example of what you're talking about. Well, as you know... The heart of sin is a refusal of responsibility. It's self-defense. So, Adam, she gave it to me. Yeah. Lord. Yeah. Cain, who's my brother? Yeah. And Noah clearly cared for his own family and not for the whole lot. And so on. In other words, Genesis shows us that the heart of sin is that refusal of responsibility. So we're relinking those two things again, which, of course, when someone comes to faith is conviction, sin, well, which causes the resistance in some of the early conversations. They don't mm-hmm. want that. No, that's right. Responsibility. Mm-hmm. You, you sum it up so well in four words, rather. Sin frames God falsely. Yeah, I think that captures it well. Have you ever been tempted to defend God out of wrong motives or selfish motives? Well, I'm sure, you know, we all want to be right. And when we're knocked down... It touches us as well as our arguments. And so certainly when I was a lot younger and uh, probably a lot more ego in it. The older I've got, the more humble I've got. 70-year-olds just don't care as much? No, that when you realize it's God's grace and the Holy Spirit really doing what needs to be done. And I've made a few feeble words and hopefully they've added to something. But you're a lot less aware, a lot more aware of how useless you are. And that's why I say... For me, the pay, I have. If you come to my desk and my study doesn't have half as many as half, I lost a third of my books in the mold crisis. But on my desk is a little silver donkey, because I think Balaam's ass mm. should be the patron saint of apologists. Mm. The Lord is doing what needs to be done. He can even use a donkey, mm. ridiculous and serviceable, mm. but he used the donkey. Mm. Sometimes uses us. Amen. (laughs) Just another sparkling example of this top of 58. If the Christian faith is true, it is true even if no one believes it. And if it is not true, it is false even if everyone believes it. The truth of the faith does not stand or fall with our defense of it. Mm -hmm. And I think the clarity on that helps a humility to come about in the evangelist and the apologist that actually makes the message more winsome. Mm -hmm. We we get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate how this... Book does it. Now, the largest uh, religious grouping in the district here, I believe, is Roman Catholicism, hmm. uh, the last I've seen. I think it has been for some decades. How do you think evangelical apologists should respond uh, in this kind of creative way that you're talking about to recent Vatican statements about those being saved who are rejecting Christ? Very similar to what Vatican II said back in the 60s on Enlighten the Nations, Lumum Gentium. You know, where they, they take the position that you don't really have to know of Christ to be saved by Christ, which seems to be in such stark contrast, I think, to a plain reading of John's Gospel or Romans chapter 10 and Paul's urgency there. How do we defend the Gospel uh, in this winsome, creative way to those who understand themselves to be proponents of it? Uh, you mean the, on the, that, that specific position yeah. of the Catholic yeah. Church? yeah. I, I think we should have a 
friendly, brotherly, non-stop friendly argument with Catholics. You know, I have great friends like, say, Michael Novak. And as I say, take your fam- our family. We could have a knockdown, drag-out argument in the kitchen. Yeah. But if one of our neighbors knocks on the door or the postman comes to the door, I wouldn't extend that family argument out into the street. And I know, well, what's appropriate in the kitchen, what's appropriate in the living room, what's appropriate in the street or further afield. And in the same way, say with my Catholic friends, I would think nothing of a knock-down, drag-out argument. And we have very fundamental disagreements, as you know well. But out in public life, say Michael and I are on the same platform, which we've been together, the differences between me as a Catholic, uh, as an evangelical, and him as a Catholic are irrelevant in terms of religious freedom or whatever. And I would stand shoulder to shoulder with him. Backstage, we'd have more of an argument. But in terms of the very thing that's at issue in this book, which is the gospel, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what we argue with about with our Roman Catholic friends. And I would never hesitate. But you, you began people knowing our Lord. I had two brothers who died below the age of accountability. Most of the church has always said, that because of the death of Christ, those who died without accountability are covered by the death of Christ. Now, Schaefer had an equivalent to that for people who've never heard. In other words, as Schaefer would put it, you have two extremes. You have the liberal universalist extreme, everyone's in, love wins sort of style. Obviously not biblical. Which, to be clear, Vatican II does not affirm. Obviously not biblical. But you've got some fundamentalists who say that no one who hasn't accepted Christ consciously will be in. Well, as I said, children have died below the age of... But Schaefer would say, Romans 2, on the day of judgment, one version puts it, some men's thoughts will accuse them, some men's thoughts will excuse them. And Schaefer had a very famous little illustration. He says, imagine if someone, almost thinkable now, was born... He put it with a tape recorder hanging around your neck. It was capable of recording every moral judgment you made, not ascetic. Mm-hmm. I don't like the color of your shirt. Mm-hmm. No, no. Every moral judgment. You're wrong, you oughtn't, you should, whatever. And judgment isn't effectively, have you lived up to the light you've had? Mm-hmm. And some people may not have heard of our Lord, but the suggestion is a tiny minority, maybe those God-fearing seekers in the New Testament, I don't know. People, when my parents are in China... Again and again, as missionaries, they made people say, thank God for what you said. I've always known there was a God like that. I never knew his name. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying. But Paul seems to suggest there are some who will not be self-judged. Most will be, obviously. Some who might not be. They won't be saved because they're righteous. No, they're not. All have sinned. But they're saved because Christ has died and yeah. like children die before the age of accountability. Yeah, I, that I, isn't to agree with what you just described the Catholics saying. Right. That's different again. I appreciate the difference between the kind of inclusivism which sees Christ as the only way to salvation mm-hmm. and negotiable as what people know yeah. about Christ self-consciously right. and universalism. Yeah. I understand those are two different positions and we would certainly agree and disagree with universalism. That kind of inclusivism, though, though it can be, you know, the spigot can be wide or very narrow. Uh, I would, I would think from from John ten and Romans two and three and Romans ten, I would be much more cautious about any kind of idea of 
salvation apart from self-conscious affirmation of Christ. Now, when to I those say, who are capable of exactly. So when I say that, I, I immediately know that, mm-hmm. that there are qualifications that almost everybody would bring in. But because anyone that I'm addressing or ever hears and understands these words will be someone who is capable of moral judgment. Absolutely. And it seems to me in Romans 2 and 3 that Paul's point is to very much drive home the point that people have, there's no one who will be declared righteous, you know, by what they've done. No, I'm with you on that. So it, it's, And people misuse that in this age yeah. where they prefer social yeah. justice to evangelism. Yeah. A thousand and one reasons why we don't need to be involved in it. Right. That's one of them. So my concern, to just to, to end this little foray into Roman Catholic apologetics, which we won't stay in, but it's just that, uh, that I think that at Vatican II, the Roman Catholic Church made a bad step mm-hmm. uh, in taking the kind of Karl Rahner anonymous Christian thing. And I find myself, as an apologist, trying to winsomely represent the, the gospel to Roman Catholics. Uh, and I think that's an important part of our call mm-hmm. as evangelists mm-hmm. and apologists. So, mm-hmm. Not to say that no... Catholics are saved. I certainly no, no, no. believe there are Roman Catholics who are trusting in Christ alone. But if it's so, they're tr- it's only because they're doing what their own church has condemned at Trent. Uh, they are trusting in Christ mm-hmm. alone. And uh, I do think we need to saved. recover confidence in evangelicalism. Mm. There's so much negative stuff thrown at us today, and the Catholics are picking up more and more of certain intellectual types. You know, because of the lure of, you know, the history of. Michelangelo and all that stuff which we don't have in evangelicalism. But I would argue we have the key to the human future in biblical theology. Notions we were talking about earlier like covenant and Mm -hmm. so on. Evangelicalism is closer to the key for the big questions of the future than Catholicism is. And we better recover a simple, grateful confidence in what it means to be evangelical and biblical. Amen. Um, briefly, we're toward the end here. There's just so much more good we could talk about. Chapter 4, The Way of the Third Fool. You're kind of critical of Christendom's oppressiveness, uh, and you think that some of what we're experiencing now is a kind of payback? Absolutely. Explain that. I would argue that if you look, say, Europe and America, the major reason for European secularity, and it's the most secular continent in history in the world, of course, transported to China, is reactions to corrupt establishments of church-state system. In other words, put it in terms of religious freedom alone, which those of you who are Baptists are strong on. We are the pioneers of religious freedom. Tertullian, Lactantius, Roger Williams, you you name it. But we are also, sadly, the worst perpetrators against religious freedom in history. And what the Catholic Church did, the notion that error has no rights and the Inquisition Coercive baptism of Jews. That is one of the blackest marks on the church in history. Absolutely. Terrible. But that all came out of the wrong view of biblical view of power and of covenant. And they are hierarchical, not covenantal. And that's why we've got a better way in the Reformation. One question I had on reading your book, I've been so appreciative of it, that I I don't want to just leave it without any questions. Mm. One question I did have was I felt you gave an entirely too sympathetic reading of Erasmus. I mean, you call him a man of deep and sympathetic faith. And um, in uh, Luther's comments, he typically, you know, is pretty clear. And here in his table talk from uh, 1531, he says, Erasmus is an eel. Nobody can grasp him except Christ alone. He's a double-dealing man. When Elector Frederick asked him in Cologne why Luther was condemned, what wrong he had done, Erasmus replied, he has done much wrong who attacks the monks in their bellies and the Pope in his crown. 
Frederick said to Spalatin, he is a strange fellow. One does not know what to make of him. He at once recognized the man's cunning. It was the remarkable astuteness of Satan that captivated the world when he attacked the superstitions of the Pope. Then he corrupted the youth with the wicked opinions he expressed in his colloquies. God keep him in check. The stratagem of Satan is violent. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's really very suspicious of harassment. And, you know, when uh, at Cambridge for a couple of years I taught Reformation, and one question, I always, one paper I always set was this question, who was the more radical reformer, Erasmus or Luther? And then I would give them a number of, you know, primary sources and works to read of each. And uh, in one sense, I didn't care about the answer. I cared about how they defended it and, you know, how they marshaled their argument. But my point in giving that uh, question was really that I thought Erasmus was the more radical reformer because Erasmus had an indifference to doctrine uh, that he, he's telling his, you know, the, one correspondent, you know, whoever's in power, just go to that church. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, the St. Socrates pray for us in, in, uh, in um, Praise of Folly. Uh, no, I'm not defending Erasmus, except that use of Praise of Folly. Right. The notion of folly, that's all. Obviously, I'm much closer to Luther. So Luther's when bondage of the will, you thought, was, 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 was a true blow, no. well struck. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In the clash between the two of them. Yeah. But Praise of Folly, and that's all. I, there probably is a phrase there that says that I prefer one to the other. Yeah. But accepted that one brilliant point of Erasmus, where he goes back. And I, I agree think, that that's a brilliant point. I one do Corinthians think Christ one. is well represented from from First Corinthians as a fool, and mm-hmm. I think Erasmus caught that well. Yeah, and that's even, all. Even your example from Alexamenos worships as God. You know that ancient mm-hmm. graffiti inscription. I think. And we're going back to a time we're going to be scorned and yeah. derided and scoffed at. We should yeah. take delight in it, not respond with. Attacks on phobiarization and victimization and that sort of nonsense. Okay, I think we've gone over an hour now, and John Piper oh is now off of his uh, exercise bike and needing us to, to finish. <laughs> so um, just one more thing. I, th- I, I think the most helpful thing in the book for me, and so I walk into this book with a lot of sympathy for your message in this book, and uh, I try to live this personally and mm-hmm. in my communication. I think I fail all that, but I, I try. What was most helpful to me was in your chapter four, you give a very strong defense of humor and comedy as being more deeply Christian than tragedy. And I think as a five-point Calvinist reform dude and who's just uh, just abhors the lightness of evangelicalism, uh, I am so tempted to wrongly love the minor key. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, me too. Yeah. In personality. Well, brother, you, you, you served me extremely well in helping me meditate on the essential hopefulness mm-hmm. of humor. Yeah. And uh, your statement on page 77 was thought-provoking when you said the dynamics of the cross of Jesus are closer to those of comedy than tragedy. And again, that was another time when I, I remember where I was in Virginia when I was reading this book. I closed the book. I sat there, and I just thought about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, friends listening, if you're anything like me... And I hope uh, it'll come out in your Easter preaching this year. Perhaps so, That's... Lord willing. But chapter 4, look at it... Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I had one minister who's a friend of mine who's. I've tortured him verbally before about his use of comedy, and uh, when I read this, uh, <laughs> I immediately called him up. I said, "Hey, I think Oz Guinness has convinced me you're right and I'm wrong, and you need to read his chapter four. This was helpful for me. Good. So thank you for this, brother. No, you're welcome. There's so much else we could talk about. Uh, we've just gotten through about a third of the book in this interview. I think that's all we're going to be able to do. But uh, I would uh, I would commend this book to you to, to read. Thank you, Oz, for giving this time and helping us think about it some more. My privilege.
Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches.